Investigators couldn't even find fingerprints to identify the corpse because after five days face down in the swamps of the jungle of Borneo, the body was totally decaying. It had been eaten by animals and it was covered with leeches. Some people think he committed suicide by jumping out of the helicopter. Some people think the guy was tortured and murdered and thrown out of the helicopter. Other people think he faked his death and right now he's living off the millions he made in stock options. But no matter what really happened, it's a pretty damn sexy ending for a geologist. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast where the only torture we get to talk about is studying for the CPA exam. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Caleb Newquist. Caleb, uh, before we get into it too much with today's case, I just want to read a listener review real quick. Uh, Lizardoo said, consider me a fan. Y'all are informative, insightful, and most importantly, hilarious. Well, bless your heart, Lizardoo. <laughs> We love compliments and we love reviews and we'd love it if you left a review. Yes, you uh, on whatever podcast platform you listen, uh, leave us a review or write a review, yeah. make a rating. Right. I don't know the terminology. I'm screwing up the I, terminology, but that, it's like whatever it is, do it. It helps people find the show. And uh, maybe, maybe Greg yeah. will enthusiastically read what you wrote. I would love to. I would love to. Yeah. So Caleb, hold yes. on. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we get too far into this, uh, let's take a quick left turn. Uh, oh, yeah. If you just just here's the question of the day: If you right. had to fake your own death, how would you do it? Like, mm. like, would you kill yourself? Like, how would you do it? You know, kill in quotes. And yes. how would you avoid detection? And how would you set up a new life for yourself? <sighs> okay, so. <clears throat> I had to think about this. Uh, uh, I, I had to kind of compartmentalize this because I have a family and I have to assume that I have to think about this as if their lives wouldn't be ruined. Right. So, okay, good, good. So you didn't already have a, like a plan laid out. I mean, I'm not going to say that, <laughs> but, but in any case, I, I am, I am my loved ones being left behind. I, we're not going to get into that bit of it. So there's Just no the straight, there, there's no go bag with a hand-drawn map in right. the closet. Right, right. Under right. the behind floorboards the, or, in the rec room. Right, in, behind the painting in the, in yeah. the den. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the way I see it, <clears throat> the way I think about this is that I basically have two options, uh, neither of which are pretty or mm, affordable. <laughs> so, but the first is something that usually involves the ocean. Okay. Like I, I tell people that I'm going to go to the beach to watch the sunset and then I stay until the beach is empty and then I escape under the cover of night. Right. And, uh, you know, my, I leave my flip-flops, my towel, snacks, whatever, in such a manner that it appears that I either went into the water and never came out. Uh, so accidental drowning. Yeah. Uh, and or, or just simply disappeared. The perfect plan for a man who lives in Denver. What else you got? <laughs> oh, I guess I could have wandered into the mountains in uh, a blizzard. Yeah. Okay. That... Yep. Hmm. The other involves fire, also very pleasant. Right. I mean, right. so I'm thinking like car bomb or like a fire bomb in my 
pedetaire, uh, where uh, very little trace of my remains uh, remain. Yeah. Uh, in, e- in each case, I'd have to, you know, I have to ditch my cell phone, of course. Yeah. I'd have to figure out a fa- fake passport, probably steal an identity, uh, open new credit cards, credit card accounts with that stolen yeah. identity. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then, you know, I'd either, either, you know, I'd leave the country. Yeah. Or like drive to to northern Idaho or some other remote place where right. people are nosy but still know to mind their business. <laughs> gotcha. So that that feels like northern Idaho. That, uh, right? I think that's a the spot on for northern Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in any case, you know, I'd have to push the car off the cliff again. More fire. But it would take lots of planning, you know, and I wouldn't be able to tell anyone anything, which I'm not sure I could do because I'm kind of a gossip and painfully introverted i'd have to make new friends yeah and so like i don't know northern idaho london stockholm reykjavik like places where i wouldn't stick out that's where i'd have i feel like that's where i could (laughs) right that's where i'd have to go with your uh with your very i mean yeah you look like you look like you should have a swedish accent that's like if if i didn't know you and just ran india on the street i go this guy's an exchange student from from uh you know up there yeah. What about you, Greg? How, 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 how do you How do you disappear and never be heard from again? I, I'd wander into the mountains in the middle of a blizzard. You basically gave mine away. Cause like, I, the end, like Jack Nicholson at the end of The Shining. Huh? Well, kind of. He didn't really wander. He just got stuck in the maze. Yeah, he's, he was kind of losing it. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. Well, and you, you were like, you wanted to go to some place where you'd blend in. If, if, I, if I shaved the beard, uh, got hair plugs in it. And and got my vision fixed, so I didn't need glasses. I I think, dude, be you'd be pre- fine. Yeah, I don't think anybody know who the hell I was. No, you'd be great. Yeah, exactly. So, a- anyways, Caleb, the reason we're talking about this is because in the fraud case we're looking at today, we end up with at least one, but maybe two dead guys, and Ooh. one of those two dead guys, maybe but not for sure, faked his own death. And all of this has to do with this gold mine in Indonesia. Our story today starts out in Canada. Uh, It was there that an enterprising gentleman named David Gordon Walsh quit his job as the vice president of a national securities firm. And in May of 1988, he incorporated Briex Minerals and a little over a year later, in July of 1989, Briex debuted on the Alberta Stock Exchange, uh, which, uh, if you're not familiar, the Alberta Stock Exchange is among the top 100 most sexy stock exchanges in North America. And <laughs> it debuted at, thir- at a whopping 30 cents per share as a junior mining company. Alberta Stock Exchange, Miss, Miss December on the... Stock exchange calendar. Right. Just barely got in, <laughs> but got in nonetheless. Right. <laughs> Briex was incorporated as a junior mining company, which sounds weird. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a mining company with very low self-esteem. Exactly. But, but we looked into it and a junior mining company is an exploration company. Right. Not so much a company that actually pulls the minerals out of the ground. Yeah. They so like, they like go, hey, there's gold over here. Somebody want to yeah. want to dig this? Yeah. Right. Right. And, the, and energy energy companies, I know mining's not energy per se, but energy companies kind of work a similar way. Okay. Like back in the day, did you ever watch that movie, There Will Be Blood? 
I did. Yeah. Yeah. Good movie. Good yeah. movie. Kind of intense and weird and disturbing. But yeah. like like in those old days, the guys would be like the guys they would walk around with the sticks and the fucking wilderness of Oklahoma or right. Texas like the, or whatever. And they'd yeah. be like, It's right here. Yeah. And yeah. like but they can't do anything. They yeah. were just these guys who had a feeling. Right, right, right. And then they'd they'd they dig a hole in the ground and he'd be like, It's mine and yeah. Daniel Day Lewis would lose his mind. But anyway. Kind of That's kind of how mining seems to work too, I guess. Yeah, yeah it seemed like, well, and that, that was one of the things because I, I know that the, I mean, again, I, maybe it's just because when we, you know, did our accounting studies in school, there was, I, I felt like there was a, quite a bit that we looked at in terms of like, you know, natural gas, petroleum, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, in terms of exploration and, and things of that nature. So yeah, looking at this, it seemed like there was a there was a lot of similarities that it felt like there mm-hmm. was between. Mm-hmm. But because again, whether it's oil, whether it's whether it's liquid gold or gold gold, you're pulling yep. it out of the ground. You got to find it and then pull it out. So yeah, it costs money to look for it. Yeah, exactly. And then it costs money to get it out of the ground. Yep, exactly. Yep. When Briex went public, it very intentionally marketed itself to investors as highly speculative. They were literally going to use investor money to try to strike gold, which, to be fair, sounds insane. Even in, what, 1989? Yeah. <laughs> that that right. sounds crazy. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, I thought, are you talking 1849? Yeah. Or are you the talking- California gold rush? Yeah, 1989. I think you missed it, guys. Yeah. It's, it's been a few generations. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> anyway- uh, specifically, Briex was going to look for gold in the Northwest Territories. Now, I have not been to the Northwest Territories, but it is, from all I can tell, uh, remote and fucking cold. So I don't know why you would want to go there, why you would think gold is there. Maybe these people know something that the rest of us don't, but I don't know why a person would go pretty much to the Arctic to look for gold. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, also known as SCA CPA. Hey, Caleb, you know I love diving into a juicy fraud case with you, right? But check this out. There's a place where accountants get together and talk shop and share knowledge about everything accounting related, including stories about untamed financials. Oh, tell me more, Greg. At every single one of my state CPA society events, there's a mountain of practical insights and experience. You get to meet other accountants, share knowledge, and even hear some firsthand accounts of financial intrigue. And here's the kicker, Caleb. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better place for networking. I joined my state society as an undergrad during the depths of the Great Recession, and before I graduated, I had multiple job offers, all from firms that I connected with through my state society. Hey, that all sounds pretty good, Greg, but what else does a state CPA society bring to the table? Uh, They bring lifelong professional friendships, networking that'll turbocharge your career, and leadership opportunities. And on top of all that, your state CPA society is an unwavering advocate for you and for the profession. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of the constantly shifting business, regulatory, and legislative landscapes to keep you on the cutting edge and to protect the CPA profession. And as you know, protecting the profession means securing your livelihood. And hey, wherever you're tuning into the podcast from, be it the Palmetto State or some other state with a lamer nickname, 
there's a CPA association in your corner ready to ignite your accounting journey. If you're ready to find out why CPA association membership is for you, head on over to ohmyfraud.promo slash SCACPA. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash SCACPA. Right. I, my, get, my guess is that nobody wants to go there to look for gold. So they're like going, hey, where's nobody really looked yet? And, and <laughs> yeah. they go here. And it turns out Brex sucked at finding gold. So much so that just three years after their IPO in June 1992, David Walsh filed for bankruptcy for himself. <laughs> Brex wasn't declaring bankruptcy, but it was barely surviving. It was basically a shell company. By March 1993, David Walsh was desperate. So he called up an acquaintance, a guy named John Felderhoff, uh, who was an Australian geologist, not to be confused with Kevin Federline, an American disappointment. Um, and David Walsh asked John Felderhoff if he had any leads on any potential mining projects. You know, kind of like, hey, hey, buddy, I just need. <laughs> I, I, the way my brain uh, makes a movie out of this is mm -hmm. he's like a junkie uh, looking for a fix where he's like, just got okay. anything. I just need something. And, uh, and so a month later, David Walsh spent his last $10,000 to go to Borneo with Felderhoff in search of gold. Now, now yes. May I, may I just interject? Please. This David Walsh guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of person spends their last 10K to go to one of the remote, most remote areas of the world. Yeah. But something tells me he didn't have much else going on. Right. Right. Again, it, like, it definitely, they, none of the accounts that I read specifically said, use the word desperation, but <laughs> everything in the story, the, the context is desperation. Yeah. And like, and, and Felderhoff, an Australian geologist, like I somehow, like, because, because I have young kids and, and Bluey is basically on a loop in our house, uh, I'm just like, my, my Australian accent comes out frequently. So I just, oh. hey, mate, let's get to Borneo and there's some fucking gold over there, man. Let's go. And like, and, 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 and Walsh, he's just this Canadian and he's just, he's got nothing else going on. He's like, I'm going to take my last 10,000 bucks. Ooh. Ooh, okay. So, yeah. so how about we take our last $10,000 and go to Borneo, eh? Is that That's our... right, mate. Get over here. <laughs> ooh, ooh, Borneo. Oh, well, okay. I guess we'll go to Borneo. Um, it's that was in a... right, we'll go. It's a shit Canadian accent. Try to do. <laughs> Might work, though. Anyway, Borneo. So... Uh, it, it feels like in uh, Oh My Fraud, we do have an, a required geography lesson every mm -hmm. episode. So here, here <laughs> Lately, is yeah. here's that segment of the show. Borneo is located in Southeast Asia. It's the third largest island in the whole damn world. It's just southwest of the Philippines, and it's about halfway between Vietnam and Australia. Uh, interesting thing. Four different countries lay claim to parts of Borneo. So it's like it's one big island, but it's chopped up into four parts, and those four parts are controlled by four different countries. Hmm. Uh, the, but the vast majority of Borneo is shared between Malaysia 
and Indonesia. The other two countries have real small chunks. So okay, Walsh and Felderhof they zoned in on this dense rainforest part of Borneo called Busang, and that was in the Indonesian part of the island. And 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 part of the reason why they did that is because people the the people of Borneo had been panning for gold in the Busang River for a long, long time. So the thought process was those specks of gold in that their river have to come from someplace. Mm -hmm. And so likely there's more up in the headwaters of the Busang River. So that convinced Walsh. Uh, he then sold all of Briex's North American holdings. He scraped together $150,000. And with that $150,000, he acquired Busang and he started looking for the mother load in Busang. This is so, this is so like Quixotic, is it not? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> it is so like this guy fucking believes. Yeah. 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 And both of to them. you, to, I don't know about you feel this way, but like to me, I, I, this story, I'm just like, these guys are fucking idiots. Like they are, <laughs> right. they are going on the biggest like pipe dream, yeah. wild goose chase you could yeah. possibly imagine. Right. But- but they just might find a fortune in gold right. and I'm going to be sitting here in fucking Colorado, not doing anything. So right, right, to right. their credit, to their credit, go after, give, go. Yeah. It's it, you're right. I guess <laughs> I hadn't your thought quest. about that before. Like the thing that's, that sticks out to me is $150,000, even in 1989 was not a lot of, or whatever. It, or, yeah, yeah. Whatever it was. Yeah. Oh yeah. 1992, 1993. This was Three, March 1993. Yeah. yeah. So even back in March 1993, $150,000 was not that much money. Uh, so it seems like they got a, they, they stretched those dollars. But yeah. like you said, it is funny to think that they're basically doing the same thing as selling all of Briex's holding and buying $150,000 of lottery tickets. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not a whole lot different. Lottery tickets in another country. Right, right, right. <laughs> Indonesian lottery tickets. Yeah. So... So these guys, so Felderhof, Walsh, they start looking around for gold. Uh, but after eight months, it looked like Busang was just one more Briex failure. And and probably based on Walsh going all in, it was probably Briex's last uh, failure. But their chief geologist for the project, a gentleman named Michael de Guzman, he pleaded for more time. He He also believed in this place being where the gold was gonna be but despite de guzman's enthusiasm for the project by december of 1993 felderhof uh was getting ready to shut the whole thing down and that's when de guzman found the gold lots and lots of gold on news of de guzman's discovery Briex's stock price jumped to 70 cents per share, up from 12 cents earlier in the year. Greg, uh, you are a former middle school math teacher. Yes. Uh, that is a an impressive percentage increase, that, is it not? That that's that's uh, what probably about 600 percent, close to 600 percent jump. <laughs> yeah. The, but but also funny, I think since it's still under a dollar per share, it would still be considered a penny stock. Over the next year, more core samples were examined. And it was estimated 
that there were 2 million ounces of recoverable gold. And by the end of 1994, Brex hit $2 per share. So Greg. Yes. <laughs> if you bought $1,000 of Brex stock at 12 cents per share, and it is now worth $2, you're pretty, you're, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Yeah, exactly. I, at that point, the way that I, not that I've been super speculative with things that I have uh, invested in, but I would be like, okay, the ride's over and I would have cashed yeah, out no at $2, kidding, right? two bucks a yeah. I go, this is good enough. We, we made, we made what we needed to do. Let's, uh, let's count our blessings and, you know. It's kind of a meme stock before meme stocks were meme stocks. Yeah. It, which, but again, I think that's. Part of this, the fascination I have with this entire case is that it, it's it's realizing that gold makes people insane. Crazy? If yeah. Fucking insane. And Madness. That, and, Madness. You, and you see that where, where it is, where it's like, oh my gosh, what do we have here? And, you know, and all of a sudden they're thinking, you know, King Solomon and, you know, that, that oh, the rocks God. are going to be made of gold in my city. And, and yeah, it's, it's a weird, almost like... Uh, genetic disease that humans have that gold makes them go crazy. By July 1995, the estimates were revised up to 6 million to 8 million ounces of gold. And Brex's share price went up to $14. Amazing. I mean, this is, yeah. Later in the year, some mining analysts estimated more than 10 million ounces of gold. And by January 1996, the stock had climbed to $93 per share. So right. people are laughing all the way. Yeah. <laughs> laughing to the bank yep. with and, this. And again, if if I had bought in at 12 cents a share, the whole, the whole ride from $2 to $93, I would have been like, I don't know why I'm staying in. I got to cash out. Got to cash out. Yeah, I would have been paranoid the entire time. Right, not so, enjoying a second of no, it. No, 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 no. <laughs> just been, just been anxiety ridden the entire time. In April 1996, Brex moves to the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is the big boy stock exchange in Canada. Yep, and the share price jumped to 184 dollars. Right, so almost double. That was in April. Yeah. So April that, 96. Yes, yeah, so that was in, in four months of 1996. The price doubled again. Yeah, that 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 an increase in that short amount of time, like that's that's insane. Yes. Later, that same year, 1996, the estimates were revised again to 47 million ounces, and the stock price peaked at ready? $286.50 per share. Right. So even though they hadn't dug up even one nugget of gold, all the shareholders had definitely struck gold. Not a single flake. Right. Right. What you said, though, is so true, though. I, I, I can't believe that didn't dawn on me. But it's like gold. There's something about gold that makes, especially men, makes men mad. Like yeah. men lose their fucking mind. Yeah. It's like it just, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's very much, you know, and again, based on movies that we've watched of, right. of people who are like, there's gold in California. And so they just leave everything behind and grab a pickaxe and a donkey and go out to, oh, no. to the hills of Victorville to try. No, to, no, no. What's funny about that though, is like, is, is they go to California without their picks, pickaxe and their shovel and they buy them in California and the guys selling pickaxes and shovels is the motherfucker who got rich. Right. The guy searching for gold ended up drunk in, in yeah. a river. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So 
by this time, uh, Briex obviously is a big damn deal. Uh, and so unsurprisingly, some other entities start showing up that want to get their fingers into the pie. And in October of 1996, so 1996, pretty big year for this whole situation. Uh, there's a local Indonesian mining company who said that they actually own 10% of the interest in Busang. And because of that, the Indonesian government de decided that they were just going to delay issuing Briex's mining permit until all of the ownership rights were actually settled and just totally written in stone and un unquestioned. Uh, and so it seems like a deliberate delay tactic it, if i it kind if of I may and, say so. and and i mean not to you know one of the things that that was actually part of the research that i found too is indonesia as a emerging economy uh they did not have the 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 most trustworthy government there was a, there was a fair amount of corruption involved in the government so i wouldn't it, it it's again it wasn't part of the research but reading between the lines, it's almost like they're going. We we need to make sure that if, if this is if these are our natural resources, we need to make sure that all of that profit isn't just going to some knucklehead in Canada. Yep. So I th I think that's part of what's going on there too. But that's that's a bit of speculation on my part as well. So but listen to further complicate things. Remember, Briex was a junior mining company, and so it didn't even have the capacity to actually extract all those millions and millions of ounces of gold. And because of that, there were, there was not one, not two, but three different mining companies who were, who were actually trying to pressure Briex into joint venture deals, which is weird because it very much was that they were trying to pressure Briex, not that they were trying to schmooze Briex, which I, which I, but, but it's funny. I think that's refl that reflects the fact that Briex was n nothing just basically months before this. So, yep. so the, but these are, these are like old established mining companies that like this is their world. And so, yeah, I think they're just using their clout to come in and kind of try to force Briex to, to, to pick them. So then in January 1997, just the beginning of the next year, the Indonesian government issued an ultimatum. They said that Briex had exactly one month to reach a deal with somebody and start extracting the damn gold. Or And if they couldn't do that, they'd lose everything. Like everything would just revert back to, to, to uh, I guess, the Indonesian government. So no surprise exactly you know be, just beating their their one month deadline in february of 1997 briex announced a surprise deal where briex would get 45 percent of the profits from the busan gold mine uh the u.s mining giant freeport mcmoran would get 15 percent of the profits uh and all of the local interests all the indonesian interests in the place including the indonesian government would get the remaining 40 percent of the profits and so, uh, again, unsurprisingly, all of this uh, chaos made the stock price drop down all the way to $23 a share. So, uh, again, people who jumped on it, two eighty six fifty were probably pretty pissed. Uh, yeah, about people who bought it, two eighty six were not happy. <laughs> and, and sure, in hindsight, this next thing looks a little desperate. But right after this deal was announced and the stock price sunk, John Felderhoff, the Australian geologist, 
he announced he had his own new estimate, not of 47 million, but of 200 million <laughs> ounces of gold in the Busang gold mine. <laughs> and stock yeah! manipulation? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> has to be. Uh, John. Hey, mate. It's 200 million ounces of gold in there. Right. Which is funny because think about that. He was also, he was the guy who wanted to shut the whole thing down. Right. Just, you know, back in December of 1993. So four years ago, he was the guy who said, there's nothing here. We're going to shut it all down. Like we said, Freeport McMoran was brought in to actually mine the gold. So in March, 1997, they showed up in Busang in the jungle and they did their own testing to determine where and how to start their mining operation. But their test showed, quote, insignificant traces of gold, end quote. Which is weird because my backyard also has insignificant traces of gold. My, my backyard too. <laughs> oh, that's so that right? weird. What? <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. It's crazy. Crazy. At the same time, Felderhoff and Walsh and De Guzman were at a mining conference in Toronto where they were being showered with praise from the mining world. But Freeport McMoran was pissed and they were demanding an explanation. Uh, yeah, the, the, the phrase insignificant traces of gold after mm, 200 million ounces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the biggest mining companies in the world. Yeah. That who who knows how, what they're doing and knows <laughs> how to get the stuff out. Yeah. Probably has like fucking armies of lawyers on retainer. Probably. <laughs> You'd think so. Yeah. Uh, so Walsh and Felderhoff send de Guzman back to Borneo. It was his samples that showed the gold deposits. So if anyone could fix this problem, it was him. Yeah. On March 19th, 1997, de Guzman got on a helicopter to fly from the city of Balikpapan to Busang. 20 minutes into the flight, De Guzman, who was headed to face some potentially difficult and embarrassing questions, jumped out of the helicopter to his death in the Indonesian jungle. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. I, I mean, let's, let's, let's be frank here. My comedic timing was right on the money. <laughs> yeah, and as was De Guzman's. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, yes. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe he was pushed. Or maybe something else entirely. At this point, we got to tell you the crazy backstory of Michael de Guzman. This guy was, by all accounts, he was a fantastic geologist. He was a uh he was born in the Philippines. Uh, his father was a geologist. He followed in his footsteps. Again, like we said, the Philippines, not too far from Borneo. That's how he got pulled in and got part of this, uh, you know, got got uh, involved in the Briex situation in Busang. But another fun fact, prior to being hired by Briex, he was at another company where uh, he was fired for using company funds to buy food and furniture for, it just says for a woman. Uh, we're not sure who the woman was, uh, and that becomes more interesting the more of his backstory uh, unfolds. Uh, Wait, you can't just do that? 
No. Oh no! God. I don't know. All right. I don't know what the limitations are on your expense account, but yeah, it's usually not food and furniture for a lady friend. Uh, there's no, there's no expense code for that. I, there, there shouldn't be food and furniture <laughs> for lady friend. Yeah. So, the other thing is, De Guzman made, uh, reportedly, he made four million dollars just personally from the sale of his Briex stock options that Not he'd bad. acquired over the over the time and, you know and obviously the thing exploded so he's he's doing pretty good with anyone with stock options would be thrilled that they had been issued stock options but then after de guzman's death it was discovered that de guzman had listen four wives in different parts of southeast asia with whom he'd had nine children and none of those four families knew about any of the other four families. Uh, and to top that <laughs> off, while he was at that conference in Toronto that we were just talking about, he proposed to a stripper to be the potential fifth secret wife. Come on. Yeah. Come this, on. this guy, he was Mormon. God. If, if <laughs> Like, I, yeah. As someone who lives in Utah... This guy's a Mormon. Uh, then after after the a whole bit of thing, a cafeteria Mormon, from what it sounds like, but whatever, a little, little bit, yeah. Then after after all this stuff happens, they found a suicide letter in De Guzman's personal belongings, uh, and the this the letter said that he committed suicide to escape the ravages of hepatitis B, which I don't know about you. I've never heard about the ravages of hepatitis B. Not not yeah, saying don't they just give you don't they just give you penicillin? I I'm not sure, uh, but okay. and, and I'm sure there's people out there who are suffering from the the effects of <laughs> the ravages hepatitis B. But I just don't know of anybody who's been like I just can't take this hepatitis B anymore. But and, and then on top of that, De Guzman apparently had just recently contracted the virus. And the metal doc the medical documents suggested that his case wasn't even really that bad when compared to what it could be with hepatitis B. And and Caleb, on top of that, the suicide note also misspelled one of his wife's nicknames and oh. it had a bunch of grammatical errors, even though de Guzman was fluent in English. So hmm. that's that's pretty odd. Suspicious? Pretty very suspicious. But then check this out. One okay. of his four wives, she claimed that six months after the helicopter incident, her maid received a call from Michael de Guzman, who left a message for his wife. Uh, and the message was that $200,000 would be deposited into her bank account. She checked her bank account and boom, there was $200,000 in the bank account. And on top of that, there have been multiple, unverified, but multiple sightings of de Guzman in Canada since the helicopter incident. Unverified. So it's kind of like, you know, two things that people are seeing and can't like prove a Yeti? in Canada. It's yeah, kind of like seeing a Yeti. Yeah, right? Sasquatch and de Guzman. Mm -hmm. They're both in Canada, but mm -hmm. nobody can really prove it. Right. Uh, okay. Then, right. then, listen, the body that oh. they found yeah. in the jungle, it, it took them five days to find the body. And when they did, the body was too damaged and too decomposed to be reliably identified. 
It had, it, they said it had, it was covered in leeches. It had a bunch of maggots yeah. in it. It had been nibbled mm -hmm. on by forest creatures. Uh, yeah. and, and so, yeah, just in bad shape. As a matter of fact, Caleb, there was one, there was one and only one account that I saw that said that the body that was recovered uh, had no, like the hands and the feet had been cut off of the body. Mm. Uh, and, and, and the report was even that they were, they, they seemed to be surgically removed. Now, uh, you might be wondering what source that was. It was Wikipedia. So I don't, <laughs> I don't think, and, and that was never like other sources I said, said that they like, they like, uh, were looking for fingerprints, but the fingerprints were too badly decomposed. And I kind of go, you can't really, I don't, I don't think if a hand was missing, you wouldn't say that the fingerprints were decomposed. I think you just say the hands were missing. Uh, so, so yeah, so I, I don't, I don't put a whole lot of stock in the, in the one account that I read on Wikipedia of the hands and feet being cut off of this body. I, there was another thing that I saw somewhere where there was an account that a body was missing from a nearby morgue, uh, oh. at the same time. But again, okay. that was only, that only popped up once. And so I don't, yeah, but, but I also don't want to discount that because there's just all of these crazy rumors swirling around the the demise of Michael de Guzman and what what really happened. Uh, there was even a, a forensic expert. I think they called him like the Sherlock Holmes of forensic science in the Philippines. And this guy examined uh, examined the evidence of of you know the people who like I don't think he did a firsthand. Uh, examination of the body, but he looked at all of the records of the people who did, and his conclusion was that de Guzman had been tortured and murdered, and his body was chucked out of the uh, uh, helicopter. To me, I don't know, Caleb, to you, to me, I don't know who wants to murder him at this point. People might, they might have wanted to murder him after the face off with uh, Freeport McMoran, but at this point, I don't know who's wanting to to off the guy. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't know. <clears throat> I mean, I guess the wives didn't know it. I the wives didn't know about each other, so they they didn't. Right? They didn't. They all yeah, found so, out about hmm. each other after he died. So yeah, it's right. not it's not a a, a scorned woman kind of uh, scenario here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, likely after his death, they were like, oh yeah, I'd cut off his hands and feet and. Push him yeah. out of a helicopter. Yeah. yeah. Um, Indonesian police, they ruled that it was a suicide, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police concurred with the uh, Indonesian police after they reviewed their findings. An Indonesian newspaper reported that the gold estimates were grossly overstated. What? <laughs> 200 million ounces? Yeah. An independent right, 200 million ounces to insignificant traces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's a gross overstatement. An independent consultant announced gold estimates were overstated. Okay. Okay. Freeport McMoran publishes its findings of insignificant traces of gold. Right. Okay. And I think I think this is all happened. That, this is all happened. This is kind of the is this the is this the epilogue we're doing here? Yeah. At this moment, yeah, basically, okay. this is the downfall. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's funny. So so Freeport McMoran had had determined that there was insignificant traces of gold, and they yep. were going back to Briex, going, "Hey, we're not finding what you're finding." And at this point, they go, "Hey, this whole thing, this isn't our bad. 
So they they make it public yep. that they're like going. We also found that there's just no no damn gold here. Right. Finally, in May of 1997, Briex released a report saying there was no gold in Busang. The report said, "quote The magnitude of tampering with core samples is without precedent in the history of the world." End quote. <laughs> and and there's been a lot of gold samples in the history of the world. The world. Yeah. It was determined that the initial core samples had been salted with gold, some nuggets panned from the Busang River, and some shavings from gold jewelry. In June 1998, David Walsh died unexpectedly of a brain aneurysm while he was on vacation in the Bahamas. There'd be worse ways to go. Yeah. I, I, right? Again, they didn't say this, but in my mind, I envision him like on the on the on the bow of a yacht, like sunbathing with with a a mai tai and all of yeah. a sudden oh my brain and then he's and then he's done yeah so in may 1999 the royal canadian mounted police announced there was not enough evidence for criminal charges against anyone two of the key people were dead after all so yeah. the australian was the that's, only one that's left exactly speaking of which civil charges were brought against john felderhoff but they were all dropped in july of 2007 so there's that. Yep. In May 2013, a civil class action settlement gave $5.2 million, a drop in the bucket to the investors who were seeking over $5 billion in damages. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, not much. Nope. Michael de Guzman is now somewhere living on the coast in Cuba, pretending to be a fisherman while living off his $4 million of fraudulently inflated stock options. And he probably that. has hair plugs and LASIK, that bastard stealing my idea. Greg, did we learn anything? <laughs> uh, well, there's there's three things okay. that I that I learned. So one of them we've already touched on uh, before, and that is that's just the the mental illness that gold brings upon people. <laughs> yes, because it's a fever. It's a fever. A gold fever, exactly. Because if in hindsight, looking at the Briex stock, that it went from twelve cents per share. To almost three hundred dollars per share, yeah. Everyone in hindsight goes, "That's ridiculous." That clearly falls under the "too good to be true" umbrella, like e easily. Too. Good we were to having a nice laugh about it. Yeah, and <laughs> but despite that, again, the only thing that I can think of that's going to make people stay with a stock that's showing that kind of insane growth. Is mm. is this same is gold fever where they're going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this doesn't make sense. But these guys, they found gold in this in this remote area, and it, it you know, and this this could be one of the biggest gold finds in the history of the world. So yeah, it makes sense that this little obscure company they just got lucky enough to to find it, and now yeah, we need to get in on this because it's going to go to the moon when they start pulling stuff out of the ground. But again. If there was, think about this. I guess this is where I'm going, Caleb. Take gold yes. out of the equation. Okay. If there's any company that's showing that kind of growth, I immediately would assume fraud. Like, yeah, right. without right. without question, there's yes. fraud going on in that company. It's a Ponzi yes. scheme. There's something yes. like that. This doesn't yeah. happen. That kind of growth just is is not possible. And so 
So that, so again, that's a red flag that was clearly there, but that also I think was very intentionally overlooked because, because people, and that's the thing. De Guzman was the one who salted the core samples. That's again, he wasn't, that wasn't the findings in a court of law, like we just said, but that's yeah. the, the, that that's the accepted narrative of what happened here is that it was, it was de Guzman doing that. But the thing is, everybody wanted to believe him. Everybody mm-hmm. did that, yeah. you know, Briex, his, his boss, David Walsh wanted to believe him. Obviously John Felderhoff wanted to believe him. The Indonesian government wanted to believe him because they, they were, they were getting a taste of it too. Investors yep. wanted to believe him because they were getting rich with their, the appreciation of their stock values. So, so it's 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 very easy to lie when everybody really really wants your lies to be true. Uh, yes. So that I, I just fi- I find that to be a fascinating facet of this of this case. So that's that's the first thing I learned. Second thing that I want to talk about is that what happened to Briex is not like it's it's not just this one thing that happened this one time. In very recent history, we've seen stuff that's very similar to this as well. I, I think this this stuff's all has been on your radar, Caleb. But in mm. just this just just this year, we're recording this in 2023. J.P. Morgan Chase discovered that it's 1.3 million dollars of nickel that it purchased just just like sacks of of unrefined nickel was actually just sacks of rocks. That's so. J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah, it was only one point three million. We got so we got it was yeah. That's that's, weird. That was the. Is it weird? It's funny that you say it like that. Yeah. Well, I just know how big J.P. Morgan is. J.P. Morgan's chasing like the biggest one point three million dollars. Oh my god, it's not even sneeze. It's like it's it's even it's even more insignificant than that. But the fact that they found they found it, I wouldn't be surprised if there was actually maybe like a hundred and thirty million in sacks of rocks just laying around because. (laughs) JP Morgan's so big. I just have to right. believe that it's like, oh yeah, there's all kinds of like sacks of rocks and people think it's nickel no, or whatever. See, that's bizarre to me though, too, is I think a JP Morgan Chase is this this Wall Street bank that's, you know, everything's digital and maybe they have a vault with some paper money and I don't I don't think of JP Morgan Chase as having some like some like underground warehouse with sacks of, you know, of of ore i don't see them as having <laughs> right. sacks of ore that's gonna dirty their suits so right. that's that's right. what's that's also weird to me that is weird it's a weird one but Briex and jp morgan also weren't alone in 2021 there's a company called mercuria energy that's uh that, that is a, a european venture and they thought that they had 36 million dollars worth of copper but what they actually had was again a bunch of rocks that someone had spray painted a copper color because that goddamn rustoleum has just a an, a very believable color palette. So very impressive. That, very that's impressive. that's that's awesome. Where somebody's yeah. like, we got sacks of gold or sacks of copper. It's like, really show me. And they're just like, yeah, check it out. This looks like copper, right? And they're like, yep. Here's all our money. Here's thirty six million bucks. Uh, so. With both of those cases, the the yeah. Mercuria and the J.P. Morgan, I'm shocked that they would spend that much money and not do just basic due diligence that the the sacks had what the sacks were actually supposed to have. And yeah. with that, I actually kind of give a little bit of a pass 
to Briex because in the the one thing that the Briex case has that JP Morgan and Mercuria don't have is Briex everything they were doing was in this very very remote part of a tropical rainforest so it was yeah. one of the one of the accounts that I read they got into just how difficult it was to actually get to Busang so what De Guzman was doing, he was boots on the ground in Busang. He was taking these core samples, and there really wasn't. It, it was it was too difficult, too costly. There weren't experts who had any kind of inclination to go. Yeah, I'm gonna trek into the Indonesian jungle on Borneo to just fact check Michael De Guzman. So uh, they have that excuse. J.P. Morgan and Mercuria absolutely do not. They just had sacks laying around that they didn't make sure had the what do you call it? the minerals that they were supposed to have inside them um okay yeah so i guess i guess that's it and, and i kind of touched okay. on the last the last thing i have to say really i i kind of lumped that in with the uh with the first part and and that's just that people want to believe the lies and and we see that here this is the connection i want to make there we've seen that with ponzi schemes we've seen yep. it with pyramid schemes and obviously we see it now with an indonesian gold rush and the thing that we lack and is that that the accounting profession is supposed to provide but i think obviously anyone who's doing any kind of audit anywhere whether that's financial audits or metallurgical audits they need to have skepticism they got to go i don't know if these are really the rocks that they're claiming that they are there's yeah. there there got to have these are the rocks that you say they are <laughs> right uh, yeah exactly so we we need professional skepticism uh, because we don't even have amateur skeptics out there, let alone professional skeptics with these cases. Yeah, people people are enthralled by the story. Yeah. Right? Like the story right now, or the story was uh, uh, crypto. The story has been crypto. People want to believe. People yeah. want to believe that story yeah. so fucking bad. Absolutely. Pretty interesting. But those are the stories that that's, that's just more stories that people want to believe. Yeah. And yeah. It's, yeah. Like you say, we could use some just, I'd settle for amateur skeptics at this point. Exactly. Exactly. Cause yeah. it does seem like you don't need a, a, a huge amount of expertise to just, you know, I mean, I, I don't know again in movies, like, like I think it's all it didn't like pirates. They'd take their doubloon and they'd like bite it a little bit. Yeah. To make right. sure it was yeah. gold. Nobody yeah. was even doing that with, no, their, I know with this stuff. And and also right. it's funny, like with they they said that De Guzman had salted the core samples with, and, and the part that makes sense was he salted it with just flecks of gold that had been panned from the Busang River. But then yes, he got right. desperate. And he's like, "Hey, who's got a gold tooth? Let's knock that out. Yeah. And let's shave it up and put it in with this sample." So, uh, so uh, yeah, again, there's very very little very little testing, very little skepticism happening in any of this. The biting of the gold. That's so true. That's yeah. like, that's, that's a, that's, that's, a, that's what that's, amateur that's decent, that That's decent audit evidence right there. <laughs> right. right. I mean, kinda. It's yeah. at least a minimum. It's, it's something. <laughs> Supplemental procedures. There you go. There it is. All right. That's it for this episode. Remember, best practices dictate that if you have four wives, make sure that they all live in the great state of Utah. <laughs> And also remember that even if your company implodes from a massive fraud, it's possible to squirrel away enough money to travel to the Bahamas to die from an unexpected brain aneurysm.
like a like a damn CEO. Uh, so hey, if you want to drop us a line, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at ohmyfraud at earmarkcpe.com. We get lots of emails in. As a matter of fact, Caleb, I think uh, somebody sent this in to us. They're like, mm-hmm. we they were, did, yes. And I, I we, whoever you are, uh, send me another email. And I will apologize to you on a future episode for not giving you the proper shout out uh, in this in this episode. But Caleb, if people just want to talk to you and leave me out of it, uh, where can people find you out there on the internet? They can um, chat at me on Twitter because that's what Twitter is for, right. um, and LinkedIn, where things are a little where the where things are a little bit more civil. Yes, <laughs> uh, at C Newquist on Twitter and backslash Caleb Newquist on LinkedIn. Greg. If they want to leave me out of it, where do they find you? Uh, I'm I'm starting to just give up on Twitter, period. I barely ever check it nowadays. nowadays. So I'd say just go uh, find me on LinkedIn, uh, Greg Kite, CPA. The last name is K-Y-T-E because my ancestors were just as bad as spellers as I am. Oh, My Fraud is written by Greg Kite and myself. Our producer is Zach Frank. If you like the show, leave us a review. Please. Give us a rating. Yeah. Share it with a friend. Do it. That's how people find the show. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, whatever platform you listen on. And for the accountants, listen on Earmark. Get some CPE. That's what Greg does. I do. I love it. I'm already up. I'm, I've already got uh, what we're, we're a little over four months into my CPE period, and I've already got 30 out of my 80 uh, credits knocked out. Beautiful. Wonderful. Join us next time for more avarice swindlers and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh my fraud. Oh my fraud.